This is Let Your Life Speak, an audio program highlighting the exceptional work of Sidwell Friends School alumni. I'm Brian Garman, head of school for Sidwell Friends, a pre-K through 12th grade independent Quaker school located in Washington, D.C. In this interview, I sat down with Mason Morfitt, an alumnus from the class of 1993. Mason is currently the President and Chief Investment Officer at Value Act Capital, a San Francisco-based investment firm. Since joining Value Act in 2001, He's had the distinction of serving on the boards of a variety of public companies, including Microsoft. This fall, Mason spoke with me about his work, the ethical considerations that frame it, and how Sidwell Friends has shaped his career. Here we are in, at Bird Studios in San Francisco with Mason Morfitt, class of 93, who's fresh off a John Mayer concert. Mason, thanks for making time to be here today. Nice to be here. Thanks for coming to San Francisco. Yeah, well, this is my favorite place to come. Uh, we come here more than any other city than New York, so um, thanks for uh, being so hospitable to us. Let's. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit, if you would, about um, your journey out of Sidwell Friends, right? So I know you went to Princeton, but walk us through that and how you ended up out here on the coast. Yeah, I mean, if I can back it up, I'll do the journey into Sidwell Friends, too. Okay, that's uh, terrific. My father was a diplomat with uh, USAID uh, State Department. I grew up until I was in the uh, middle of sixth grade in India and Indonesia. Uh, and I went to British schools. There was no internet back then, and not a lot of um, cultural uh, connection between uh, the United States and these places of the parts of the world. And uh, I showed up uh, in sixth grade and, and did half a semester at public school, and then I showed up at Sidwell in seventh grade in the fall of 1987. At that point, I had never seen or played American football, basketball, mm. uh, and had you know, yeah. wasn't really plugged into the, what the television shows or movies or music of the day was. Interestingly, the year 1987 is seared in my brain musically, which was the U2 Joshua Tree, Beastie Boys, Good License album. to Ill, and yeah, it was it was a uh, an era that I, you know, I'll, uh, it has special resonance for me. Anyway, I showed up. Uh, and um, went uh, 7th through 12th. Uh, for a short period of time, my mom was the director of the Chinese Studies Program, which was, I right. think, fairly new at the time. Um, and uh, graduated in 93, went to Princeton, graduated in 97. Uh, after a few uh, twists and turns finding myself, I ended up in San Francisco uh, joining an investment firm called Value Act Capital that was founded in 2000. And... Uh, and I've been there ever since. Uh, we grew it from nothing to um, over $10 billion in assets under management, managing money for, for a lot of um, uh, endowments and foundations and pension plans around the world uh, with the idea that you could buy stocks in public companies and have a voice in the governance and in, in, in oversight of, uh, of these companies. Activist investing. Ex yeah. Uh, which was not a term that was coined at the time the firm was founded, but um, came to be a thing. And um, and we have since broadened it out from North America to Europe, companies like Rolls-Royce, Reuters, uh, and now Asia, Japan, and um, uh, and and potentially for, uh, further other regions, which is interesting because it brings me back to my maybe my roots of where I grew up as a kid. So... That's the story in a in a nutshell. How did that international experience shape your vision around your work and also about your ethical uh, core? Uh, talking about the ethical core sounds a sounds a little, big. Uh, um, How did it shape your highfalutin? But I, I would you, say you. the uh, growing up in extreme poverty around you. Obviously, I didn't live in extreme poverty, but observing it, it wasn't was an interesting eye opening. Uh, experience also being uh, a minority in a country and also being surrounded by a lot of international people. The kids in the school I went to were from India, Australia, uh, Indonesia, um, the UK, Scotland. Um, and uh, I think in, in a positive way, it uh, taught me how to get along with all kinds of different people, no mm -hmm. matter what their background is. I have an uncanny ability to decode highly accented English, uh, <laughs> no matter what the accent. And I, and I think um, sensitivity to kind of where people are coming from 
that that's a the good thing on you know the, the double-edged sword of that is you sort of always feel a little bit like an outsider anywhere you are because you don't really have a, a grounding in a place that's called home and you're more of a citizen of the world uh, in both the good good and bad of that but um I'd, I'd say that's the lasting legacy of that experience how did that outlook uh, that you had in terms of being able to relate to many different kinds of people extend to Sidwell Friends? Um, well, Sidwell was a, also a very diverse place back then and now. I think it's even more so, right. uh, which I really liked about it. And um, uh, <laughs> when I reflect on the institution, th there was a, a, a lot of that I respect about the mission and the, the faculty and staff and the ethos and the culture and the, the um, essence of the place. Uh, without without being too glib about it, you, you marry that up with um, the teenage brain yeah. and, the, and the student body, which is sort of going through its own personal uh, chapters, right, of growth. Many crises. And, and it's an interesting <laughs> uh, combination. And so I think some of the benefits of that uh, – being immersed in a place like that were not obvious until later in life, right? Because at the time you're just trying to, you know, get hang out it. with your friends, get through it, get yeah. your work done, right? Get into college, right? And I've observed, and it, you know, thanks to social media, you can actually you can really track what happened to your fellow alumnus and alumni uh, around the world. And it's it's really interesting to me to watch the careers that they've chosen and some of the decisions they've made and and, and contributions they've made to uh, the country and the world. And so that's, that's cool to watch. Um, but I think that, uh, I've, I've chosen a career that's investing, you know, in, in companies where you're arriving as an outsider to the party, as a minority participant without a lot of power and having to gain trust and consensus about affecting cultural changes at, at companies. And some of these uh, are large companies like Microsoft and some of them are, mm -hmm. are smaller ones, but it, it requires a kind of, um, personality and personal touch that, that's, that's, um, uh, consensus oriented and, um, gentle, but also firmly convicted. And I think that's a good description of Quaker processes and Quaker values yeah. too. How does that play out and in real time in terms of what you were doing with Microsoft, which is kind of a legendary experience, I would guess, for you? Yeah, it's one I, you know, I, I still feel I have to pinch myself of. And, you know, it was it was a great experience being at an iconic company at a really particular uh, point in, in, in time when uh, the leadership of the company was being passed from Steve Ballmer to Satya Nadella, who interestingly was an Indian immigrant, mm. you know, outsider so there's a theme highly empathic <laughs> human being from whom i learned uh i learned a lot um the the issues facing that company were were pretty uh profound the underlying technology shifts that were going on that, that many felt had left the company in the dust uh were actually real opportunities for it uh provided it could change and abandon some of its long-held cultural beliefs and, and, and attitudes. And that, um, that without getting into too much of the details in the inside baseball required, um, a common grounding in the facts and what was real and what was true and what was not true. It required courage, uh, to change both the people that were involved and also some of the, um, really organizing or organizing, um, principles behind the company, uh, such as Windows is the, the ultimate aim of, of all of Microsoft and therefore everything should be subservient to it and you should try to build phones that run Windows and, and you know, not embrace other platforms and, and, and letting go of paradigms. And, and I think um, uh, to get a, an organization of almost 100,000 people to do things like that uh, is difficult and it takes... Um, uh, getting there, like, like I said, is, is a, is a journey and it's not something that you can mandate heavy handedly. Anyone can certainly not me, but it is something that you can be a part of if you, 
uh, come in open-minded, willing to engage and have your own mind changed about things. And there were things that I think we, when we made our investment in Microsoft, we, we thought that turned out to be wrong, but we were happy to be proven wrong. And on the flip side, were the things that we could teach and, and, and bring to the table that I think they embrace, particularly Satya was very open-minded about embracing things. And that, um, Satya has this quote that the learn-it-all always outperforms the know-it-all. The learn-it-all always beats the know-it-all. Mm-hmm. And I've just taken variations on that theme and kept replaying that over and over in my mind because nobody likes a know-it-all for a mm-hmm. lot of reasons. Right. And the know-it-all actually usually doesn't get very far because nobody wants to see the know-it-all win. Nobody wants to do what the know-it-all tells them to do. But if you reorient yourself as a learn-it-all, uh, you, you create win-win situations where you grow and, and the counterparty grows as well. And that that's... Um, that's what we've tried to do at my firm and what I've tried to kind of live, right, as a human mm-hmm. being and as, as a professional. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that it took some courage to make some changes at Microsoft. Um, moving from being a know-it-all to a learn-it-all is a pretty courageous transformation to make, especially if you're, can be if you're in the leader seat, right? Right. What, what were the key moments that affected that shift? Um. And again, I, I really have, do have to give uh, more than the lion's share of the credit to the leadership team that, that did this. Uh, but um, I'll, I'll tell you some stories that kind of are particularly narrow to my vantage point. Usually when we come into a company and present some outsider views to the company, they're, they're threatening to the status quo. They're not, they're uncomfortable truths, inconvenient truths, right? Yeah. And so we, we generally present these things and, and, and do it quietly and respectfully behind the scenes to the chairman or the CEO and they, they either disappear or they get refiltered and they show up sort of gradually piecemealed out. The first thing Microsoft did was when I showed up and presented a, 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 a document with my thoughts from the outside in is they put it on the internal in- intranet for the entire board of directors and the entire senior leadership to say to, to see. And I thought that was remarkable. I'd never seen a company do that, which is to say so fearlessly kind of let's all let's put this on the table yeah, right. uh, and let's let's talk about it. Um, so that's, that's a very narrow and relatively insignificant anecdote from where I stand. But from where Satya stood, um, he inverted the paradigm from we will win at all costs and we will dominate and we will crush and we will destroy into one in which we will work together, right? And he, he built a stitch together, a coalition of um, players in the software ecosystem that used to be at, at war and at odds with the company and, and th- thought about the the industry as one of sort of cooperation and coexistence rather than, you know, Mm -hmm. Hobbesian competition. So this was part of a major cultural shift that you brought to Microsoft. That he brought to Microsoft. Yeah. Yeah. But you were certainly, I was there. You were helping out and supporting it as an investor on this because you're an investor and a board member. Yeah. Right. And when you bring these issues to companies as an activist investor, are they mostly operational issues you're bringing, or are there also ethical and cultural issues that you recognize as someone from the outside looking in, um, and and you're looking to transform culture? That is to say, is, so so is Microsoft a, a common experience, or that was that a, more of an uncommon experience where you were actually shifting the culture um, of the place? Um. Here, here's what I've observed uh, over time, and, and hopefully this makes some coherent sense. Uh, I think companies, countries, maybe schools, organizations uh, coalesce around certain paradigms and worldviews and missions. And those missions are not, sometimes they are permanent and evergreen, but many times they, they, are, they are helpful and constructive for a period of time before they become actually hindrances. And I'm a student of human psychology as well. I think the same thing happens to human beings as they grow, right? And right. you know, from various life stages, I think companies and organizations go through similar life, life cycles. And it is very often the case that when we engage with a company, what is holding them back is their old paradigms and belief systems, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Microsoft's prioritization of windows overall would be one good example of it another paradigm might be 
if you're not growing, you're dying, go big or go home, grow, 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 grow. And a lot of times they'll come into companies that have just had this ethos of sort of aggressive growth at all costs uh, that has led them to do a lot of diversifying actions into things that actually become hindrances to them because they're they're spread way too thin on a lot of different fronts that aren't aren't working and it's distracting everybody and the whole thing come, kind of comes uh, crashing down. Another paradigm might be profit above all. Mm-hmm. And I think that one uh, that one has been a an issue for uh, corporations um, that is the, the problems with that paradigm are, are, are raising their ugly head uh, everywhere you look right now. And I, and I trace some of that back to an ideological legacy coming out of the University of Chicago and Milton Friedman about mm-hmm. Um, the sole purpose of a, of a corporation is shareholder value and, and, and profits. And if you take that to extreme, um, at, you may neglect your employees, your environment, your communities, mm-hmm. and your customers, and, and that, that can come crashing down. And I think there's lots of examples of that, of that happening. And so I'd say broadly, at the time that we invest in companies, they're generally fallen angels. They're companies that were once great that have fallen on hard times. And I think m- more often than not, it is about these paradigms that they're beholden to that are sort of inhibiting their their progress, and you got to let them let it go. And so that can be uh, sometimes operational, sometimes prioritization, and sometimes philosophical. But to come from the outside and say, it's okay, it's time to move on from this and reorganize yourself around something mm-hmm. different. I don't, I'm going to turn this back on you and see if there's anything, any analogy to schools as they go through various life cycles and whether there are periods yeah, of time think, when they're foundation myths or foundation cultural premises that serve very well for a launch phase and then maybe society changes or cultures change and that might be, I don't know, like single sex to co-ed or whatever. I mean, yeah, I absolutely. Sort of things and like I think you're, yeah, we're in one of those shifts right now. I think that um, people are examining what's the best way for students to learn. Right. Uh, is it uh, this model where we instill knowledge in students? Is it an AP model right. where we're teaching kids to uh, learn as many facts as they can? Or is it a more open model where uh, we want kids to be judged by the quality of their thinking? rather right. than what exactly it is uh, that they know from um, a, a, from a perspective of uh, content knowledge. And you can't ignore content knowledge, of course, right? Because you have to have some context in which to think. Right. And, and that knowledge makes a lot of sense. But um, we are looking at ways to try to find more time and space for kids to think more deeply about what they're doing rather than trying to push them through a curriculum at light speed um, and doing something that is very cursory as opposed to something that is real deep learning. And that's one of the reasons why we decided to lay down the AP curriculum. Yeah, I want to talk more about that because for sure, when I was a student at Sidwell, and I, and I do think I do credit a lot of uh, setting me up for success happened. It said, well, it was a light speed push through and like accomplish. Yeah. And the, the, the paradigm that I felt like I was bought into and part of was academic achievement, standardized test yeah. scores, AP scores, grades, Ivy league school. And you did at it at all costs. <laughs> you tell me, you told me you spent a lot of time in the library at Georgetown studying yes, for AP I, bio. I mean, I, some of the work that I think of the hardest I've ever worked in my life was junior year. It said, well, and I used to go to, to Georgetown university library every weekend and work on my, 30 page American studies paper for Ellis yeah. Turner or Mrs. Right. Lanouette or whatever yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. And, and, the, and then the AP bio for Mrs. Fields. And it was, it was unbelievable workload. And I think taught me gr- like an incredible amount of, um, gave me an incredible amount of drive and, and work ethic and some of the, and, and I don't even think I held the candle to some of my friends who were doing that. Plus working on horizon, my friend Joe Mares would, you know, pull all nighters and the, He'd catch up sleeping under the bleachers in the old gym during a meeting for worship, but he'd like you know the the the, the intensity of of the experience was great. It's interesting to me that you guys are reconsidering whether that is the be all end all in the paradigm right. it should be. Yeah, and, and because I, I strongly support you did that's <laughs> good to hear. Thank you. That that's a quotable right there. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, let me let me ask you, what was lost in that experience? Um. Uh, I don't think I deeply, deeply loved learning until I got to college. Now I was set up well because I didn't have to like 
you know, kill myself just to stay, keep my head above water when I got yeah. to college, that I could, I had the freedom to really delve and dive into things that were super interesting to me. And when I was in, in college, I studied everything from art history to philosophy, to astronomy, to, uh, you know, y- you name it all over yeah. the map. And, and, you know, I, I deliberately tried not to specialize in anything, but to be sort of an omnivore of, of, of um, the classes that I could take. And I, I really got a lot out of them. And re- I remember having sort of viscerally intense, like, uh, intellectual experiences where I was like, this is awesome. I really love yeah. this. Well, what was, was one like, of those moments maybe like what, what course or what were you reading? Uh, Whose class were you sitting in when that happened? Well, so, again, this is a little bit ironic, but I, I, I was an economics major, but I deliberately, um, tried to make it as liberal artsy as possible. My favorite courses were things like analyses of capitalism uh-huh. and the, and the uh, Berlin wall and, and Soviet union had, had, had crumbled so there were a lot of economists that had gone to try to help Yeltsin rebuild the Soviet economy. And how do you how do you think about economic models and models of human behavior? Because economics is basically applying mathematics to psychology. How do you mathematically model how a human being is going to behave? And I wrote one of my uh, junior papers um, in college on Mahatma Gandhi's economic theories, which are proposed that that unlike traditional Western economics where it's you know supply demand curves and everything else is built upon the idea that more and consuming more is better that there's actually a point of diminishing returns to that and actually community matters and society matters and your fellow man matters and things like that and how to, if, if that's true how do you upend all of the equations and mathematics of economics and so though that that's an example of sort of the light bulbs going on in my head where, where I was like yeah. this is really cool stuff and I, and I credit um, Sidwell with, you know, freeing me to be able to like take, think at, at that higher level. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would say that's, that's interesting is that, in, that intense grounding and ability to kind of like push and learn, give me a lot of self-confidence to, to cover again, omnivorously from lots of different African academic subjects. And, uh, man, in 2005, we were looking at investing in a company that made DNA sequencers two different companies, one that had, had, impo- had powered the human genome project of the 1990s and one that was emer- emerging. And in order to make that investment, both of those investments, you had to really understand DNA c- synthesis. And I still had my AP, my AP bio books from Mrs. Fields' class, and I could go back and ramp up really quickly on how that Amazing. stuff worked. Yeah. And we funded a company that is now called Illumina that has uh, revolutionized the cost of DNA sequencing, taking it from a million dollars per genome down to a 1000 and again, we were a small part in that, but at a critical moment when the company was running out of money, we put $8 million into it to keep it alive. And here I had literally, beyond the basic science requirement in college, which for me was Psych 101 yeah. and something called Civil Engineering 262, which was looking at slides of pretty bridges. I didn't have any any post-Sidwell science experience and no biology experience, but I had the grounding and the courage to just be like, I can get into this, I can yeah. ramp back up, and then I can go in and dive into sort of like higher level expert text and have conversations with, with people um, at Cambridge University and at the Broad Institute and stuff to learn this stuff and, and, and ramp up. And so to me, what I think is most important for students and, and um, professionals of the future is the ability to sort of in any, any discipline ha- have the basic groundings, but the ability to learn and ramp up on the fly. And one of the things we ask our analysts to do all the time is to say, you know nothing about uh, radio frequencies and how walkie-talkies work, but we're going to m- look into making an investment in a company that does those kind of things for police officers and fire. Learn, you know, go. And between Wikipedia, YouTube, and you know, Google, you can read anything you want and pretty much pick up the phone and call anyone mm-hmm. you want and, and ramp up the learning curve. Sidwell, I think, gave me that you, grounded you and like and the, the confidence to just say, yeah. you name it. I can do it. Yeah. And confidence in, in just jumping off the cliff, you know, is, I mean, Woody Allen said life is 90% of life showing up. And I yeah. think it's just, it's I believe showing that, up and then being willing to jump and <laughs> say, I can do this. Right. And I think, I yeah. think said, well, did give me that. But if you guys are working, thinking about curricularly, not just trying to check boxes and getting t- test scores, but preparing people to be able to say, I can, I can go anywhere, talk to anyone and learn anything. Which sounds like an arrogant thing, but I don't think it really is. I think it's it's a it's a 
confidence and an openness and you know yeah issue. it's confidence without arrogance yeah right it needs to be well, that there needs to be some humility if you're willing to learn about me but like i think uh, <laughs> well but it's also this movement from the uh, the uh know-it-all to the learn-it-all exactly right? it's the same kind of uh, paradigm shift that you were talking about with microsoft yes and and what we again not to keep harping back to, to the culture i'm trying to build it at, at value back but it is it is learn it all uh, uh you know in, in in parentheses with with the courage to yeah to to go anywhere and do anything right yeah and and um and i think with a mission right that goes beyond making money but actually you know obviously we have to do that otherwise we wouldn't have any clients but to leave each company better off than you found it to treat people respectfully and to have yeah. good intentions because if you do that the world does want to teach you things sure right? yeah so if you have a basic grounding and a willingness to ask the questions and and you walk the walk of having good intentions like things you know it's it's a remarkable what where the world takes you and so you lay um some of what is happening today in terms of the pursuit of profit at the feet of Friedman. Um, where do you look in economic theory? Where do you look in your analysis of capitalism to find thinkers that are influential to you in trying to move beyond profit? Um, I've got a long list of, of, of folks uh, that are that are um, the topic has been become very hot recently, mm -hmm. right? And I think uh, therefore there's there's lots of places you could go for this from the World Economic Forum to sort of just um, any of the op-ed writers in any major newspaper to the Economist, et cetera. I I think uh, that um, let me let me sort of back this up for a second because I think there's some universal uh, issues here. One of the hard things about being a leader of anything, school, investment firm, uh, company, is trying to do two things. One, make decisions in the face of uncertainty mm -hmm. with imperfect information and having to make them just quickly. And two is balancing trade-offs between competing values and competing constituencies. All, all of whom are, are valid and have merit, but very few of whom are totally in alignment with each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the reason why I'm being so long-winded about this is because I don't think there's a single source that can actually elucidate the dimensions of this problem. Because if I, I, I took some notes on this before I got here, but if you think about the, 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 the value trade-offs, right? One of the things that, that any organization has to deal with is sort of meritocracy versus culture. Uh, a culture of sort of collegiality. And I mean, this is a little bit of this AP versus mm -hmm. learning, right? Or sure. we have a, yeah, yeah. A, 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 because without hardcore meritocracy, you risk free riders and you risk laziness and you're, you know, and slipping standards, right? But you, you, you also push it too far and you get a culture of, of, uh, that, that's not, uh, positive or not, becomes a sort of know it all and, and kill, crush, destroy kind of culture, which you don't, which you don't want to have another sort of history of like what got us here versus future and wh where we're going, right? And trying to r respect the traditions and maybe some of the faculty, institutions, organizations of the past versus embracing the way of the future. Again, mm -hmm. AP sounds like a perfect example of that. Um, another sort of different definitions of success, right? Profit versus customer experience versus, you know, your own team's experience versus uh, the environment versus all, all these other sort of, uh, goals, time horizons, near term versus, versus long term, et cetera. Um, and, and it, and it's taking in, uh, those sort of values and then all these constituencies, my internal team versus the companies that I work with versus mm -hmm. my clients versus, uh, the folks in the community versus, you know, um, my government versus my, you know, all, all these, all these constituencies sort of come, uh, if you think about them as balls that you're all trying to juggle at the same time and you've yeah. got to figure out which ones to catch when and which yeah. ones to, you know, let the discerning drop. shades of gray to use another kind of metaphor. Concept. And it comes 
hot and heavy when you have a crisis, right? right? And then all these things, past versus future, merit versus, you know, constituency A versus constituency B, right? And trying to do the right thing becomes complete fog of war. And the best you can hope for is to, you know, try your best and and you're going to piss off a lot of people and probably not make everybody happy, maybe not make anybody fully happy, right? But try to do your best and get through to to the best thing. I'm familiar with the pattern. Right. And so a simplistic framework that is just profits overall and you can measure the scorecard and we win. Right. Doesn't make sense because the problem doesn't isn't doesn't yeah. work like that. Yeah. And uh you know those flashpoints where 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 all of those values and all of those constituencies land on the floor with a thud and crash and breaking is is incredibly emotionally draining for me and there I've had a few of those you've seen that can you yeah. share something like that um yeah I mean there's sort of you know painful things that dredge up but like uh 10-15 years ago one of our longtime employees CFO was was accused of insider trading and I had to go to his house and this is the guy I worked with for a long time and I had to personally repossess his computers take back his badge, put him on leave, cooperate with federal authorities. And, and you know, to this day, he, he settled without admitting or denying wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. I don't know what happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But this was a member of my team, mm-hmm. and, and I had to do the hard thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been on boards of directors where uh, companies have been under investigation, indictment, and sometimes U.S. Senate and congressional investigation, and I had to run independent investigations that to get to the truth as best we could uh do it i had to i've had to sever many times um people that were friends of mine and and uh for performance reasons or other uh alter or end their careers Mm -hmm. those are really hard if you care about people Mm -hmm. and if you've been a a learn it all with those people and if you've been trying to do the right thing you're you're, and and it happens Mm -hmm. that's that's the kind of uh, the, the catch 22s you get into, I think when you take on a job mm-hmm. that has, um, uh, leadership and responsibility involved and it's not all hunky dory. It's, it's mm-hmm. an, again, I don't know how much of these kind of things you want to talk about, but you, I, I, as a leader of the school, uh, I mean, this probably goes with your territory even more than mine. Yeah, absolutely. And especially in a small tight knit community, uh, that has a Quaker ethos where you want to care about everyone. You do care about everyone. Um, but sometimes there are difficult situations where you have to make a decision. And, you know, I think you're right. I, I have a lot of uh, empathy for what you're saying in terms of uh, needing to make decisions sometimes when not everybody knows all of the circumstances. It's not appropriate for them to know all the circumstances, and they can't. And they never will. And they never will. And yet you have to make a decision in that context. And that's difficult, right? Because there's a, a whole emotional component that comes with that. Right. Um, and, and, that's, and sometimes the, organ, the, the needs of the organization or the greater good outweigh the needs of the right. individual. And that is a horrible feeling to that's right. meet out that justice. Yeah. But you got to do it. Absolutely. And, and, um, and so when I think about, uh, I do, I do want to pick you a little, probe you a little bit more on that, but, um, just to close the loop on your question, I, I don't have a central text. I don't have a Bible yeah. for this stuff. I have, yeah, no, you, you take it from literature, you take it from yeah. personal experience, you take it from mentors, you take it from articles, you take it from, uh, uh, anywhere you can. Because this is a kaleidoscope, and there's nobody who's, who's giving you the whole picture. Yeah. It, it, it is little pieces of glass coming at you from from everywhere yeah. you go in life, and you got to bring it all together. And there is no right answer, and there's no perfect answer. Yeah, you the, just try your best. There's no theorist who knows it all or has described it all perfectly. And the minute that somebody buys into a kind of fundamentalism around a theorist, I think is the moment people are actually in trouble. Right. I like your vision of the kaleidoscope yeah. metaphor. I like that. And you got to make sure that the red glass and the green glass and the yellow glass all feel like they got heard and were genuinely heard. And you've got to weigh all these things and, and, you know, make a decision. You you talk about, uh, think about capitalism, think about capitalism where it is right now. You think about the disparity of wealth that we have in this country. 
I read a piece in the New York Review of Books last week about an emerging oligarchy. Maybe it's already emerged. Is it possible to have a moral economy in the current framework that we're operating in? Um, here, I mean, I, I think to keep riffing on this kaleidoscope thing we just created, that's the best you can hope for. Because the world at large is also a set of conflicting values, needs, and constituencies, mm-hmm. right? Sure. And you want to have competition and drive and yeah. excellence. I mean, Sidwell for me was, a, was an ex- experience of excellence with a osmosis of Quaker values that kind of seeped in, uh, and it, not, not yeah. just from the school, but from my, my parents and right. Quaker meeting and things like yeah. that. But I do think the excellence part is important. Sure. But it has its drawbacks. Every, all of these are, are double-edged swords. Yeah. And so um, uh, I do think we're having a, an emerging oligarchy. Ironically, well, let me back up and try to n- tie all this in a, in a bow. Um, my parents were Quakers, or still are, uh, practicing mm-hmm. values of Quaker simplicity and, and, and uh, service, and, and my my parents met uh, teaching English in Southeast Asia and then worked in a Quaker service project in India before becoming uh, involved both in high, in education and in uh, foreign aid. And your father's done a great job on our board serving as a very credible Quaker voice right. as well. Yeah, that's good to hear. Um, I'm sure he has. And the, the, uh, um, and, and then I came to, Sidwell, which again reinforced a lot of those values, but also had this value of, of um, uh, academic excellence, and then also had, but also had sort of a uh, spectrum of, of diversity, but included a lot of elite and wealthy mm-hmm. kids. And um, I went forward in life, and uh, had a career in finance and business, right, and. Um, but I was a little bit tortured about it because of this, mm-hmm. this upbringing. Right. And, and I remember, uh, you know, right after college, you know, thinking maybe I should be an artist and, you know, applying to Walt Disney and we did with no credentials whatsoever. And, and, you know, to be, maybe I could make movies there and maybe I could, uh, I lived on a, on a ski resort for half a season and maybe I'll hang out here and kind of try, maybe I'll go to law school. Maybe, you know, trying to. I don't think it's that uncommon for people that age, but like, um, and, and when I was, a, when I, again, I wrote this junior paper on Mahatma Gandhi's economics, my senior thesis was on income inequality, which was just, I think, starting to explode mm-hmm. in the 1990s mm-hmm. due to a lot of things that I think are hard to turn back globalization, technology, uh, financialization of the economy. Um, and, are just picking up momentum and steam in particular, or, or the, the economy is consolidating into sort of oligarchy, uh, uh, you know, sort of industry by industry. Uh, there are network effect and winner take all business models mm-hmm. that are, that are, um, everywhere. And, and even ones that don't have quite as explicitly, uh, technology enabled network effects have economies of scale and, and, and benefits to consolidations. That's what we're seeing. And obviously the, the benefits to higher education and degrees are clear. And then it's colliding with, you know, back to this kaleidoscope issue, uh, you know, in California here, we have a housing crisis, which right. is a con- convergence of those trends plus zoning and environmental rules, which are well-meaning and have, you know, mm-hmm. real values and the creating, you know, mm-hmm. a homelessness crisis. And so, uh, where we are, I think in, in the, uh, U S economy is, um, Either cynically out of fear of what what a populist backlash will mean for them, or genuinely out of watching what's happening to the community, and you can you could take either side of that. I, I think it's more genuine than people think. Uh, businesses are saying we have more uh, of a responsibility to a broader constituency set than just our shareholders and and making mm-hmm. money. Right. So this has played out in the Bay Area, right around the homeless question. Yes, we have several leading uh, companies in the Bay Area. Salesforce.com has has always had a mission of giving one percent of its profits to to charity and really encouraging sort of community engagement by its uh, 
citizens, and um, there are uh, a lot of um, interesting individual and and collaborative philanthropic efforts designed to bring technology-based solutions and innovations to the social uh, sector coming out of businesses, corporations, and uh, wealthy individuals. So it's not... Nothing is black and white. There isn't sort of business bad, social mm-hmm. sector good. Right. That sort of the worlds inter, uh, collide and intersect and can learn again. Back to the learn it all thing from each other a lot. Uh, and so, it it will be really interesting what happens going forward because from a um, uh, pure kind of market forces standpoint. Um, you saw the business roundtable say that they think corporations should have more than just a shareholder mission. They just, mm-hmm. they, you know, right now, most corporations, particularly incorporated in the state of Delaware, have a fairly clear fiduciary duty to shareholders, but not other constituencies. And that may be changing. It's certainly changing attitudinally. And then you have um, politicians on the left trying talking about legislating this, right? And moving towards a model that looks more like Germany, where labor gets represented on the board of directors and the company legally has duties to more than... Uh, just its profit um, uh, obligation to make a lot of money, and so I think it's it's happening from the top down, governmentally, and from the bottom mm-hmm. up. And mm-hmm. we'll, it, you know, at the same time that you're seeing a lot of innovation in sort of social um, mm-hmm. services and and philanthropy and technology, and and it's pretty exciting to watch it actually. And I don't know uh, where it's going to go or if it's going to work. We can take a long detour into like philanthropy and what what works and what doesn't work but the way that i've tried to think about this is there's no way i'm going to have all the answers or any one of any one person is but what what's the broadest set of relationships you can have uh to inform yourself and try to lean in and help and for Mm -hmm. me that has meant um making philanthropic relationships but also government relationships with local leaders in california uh, and also on the national level, but but to try to be part of the conversation, um, and try to do it in venues where I don't have a vested interest, right? Because I think um, a lot of engagement on these issues is sort of can be colored by self interest, which makes you you're sort of a less credible participant, but also um, takes you different places than if you're just trying to see see about mm-hmm. making the, the world a better place and i will honestly say i don't i don't think i've had a huge impact yet yeah but but it's something it's that something you, on my mind it is and what have you done so far because i know that you've been involved in um some building of these relationships with the governor um etc the mayor of san francisco yeah i think um back to this having the audacity to think you can learn anything i i i uh so I served on a board with Bill Gates, who's the greatest philanthropist of our generation, probably. Right. And just started reading his his blog and his his websites and his emails, and he has book recommendations every season, which are great, and I read all those. Mm-hmm. And and, um, and then I started reading about the history of philanthropy, going back for foundation, Carnegie Foundation. Carnegie, you know, what, did, sure. what have people tried and failed? What have they? What has worked? What has not worked? What have been mm-hmm. the big issues? And, and where have people played? I mean, obviously there's arts and there's medicine and things like that, but there's a, when you come to sort of attacking issues of education, poverty, inequality, et cetera, what, what have people done and try, trying to get uh, informed in that front? And then what are people doing in the present day uh, across the country and across the world and just reading a lot? So that's number one. Um, number two is uh, rather than doing this on my own, what kind of organizations are set up to form coalitions? And there's something that I'm on the board of called Tipping Point Community in San Francisco, which pools together donor resources. So it gives out roughly $25 million a year to nonprofits. It also has a $100 million anti-homelessness mm. initiative, which is a combination of policy change, but also actually physically constructing uh, housing units um, and experimenting with programs in each of those domains. So number two is find other smart people to work with and pool your resources. And number three, I think, is just think n- not just business and, and philanthropically, but governmentally as well. Mm-hmm. And so that, uh, if you want to have an impact on your community's health, housing, poverty, it's state and local government that matters, mm-hmm. not the federal government. And so th- those mm-hmm. are the places where I've tried to both yeah. through, 
through political donations, um, but also, uh, <laughs> which by the way, some people can can say is is not the the the, the cleanest thing in the world to do. But I, I what the way I viewed it was to begin to begin creating a learn teach relationship with government. And so uh, when the governor of California, uh, Governor Newsom, was running, I had him come into my office, and we I had my interns and an investment team approach him the way we would approach the CEO of Microsoft. In mm-hmm. other words, mm-hmm. let's do our own mm-hmm. work on the budget, mm-hmm. education. Let's mm-hmm. pick a couple things and, mm-hmm. and get pretty deep in it. And then let's like write a memo and make him respond to it. And yeah. he comes in and he's, he actually emailed me, uh, his team emailed me us yesterday about wanting to come back and do it again because he finds it interesting to have Good. you know intellectual uh, debate. And if you have smart people that again can learn whether it's DNA sequencing or radio frequency or education, right? I mean, yeah. all, everyone I think is a citizen who's well-educated and got a kind of broad grounding should feel empowered and, you know, in, entitled to have an opinion and do their own research. And um, which kind of brings me to another life principle. Again, I hate talking in terms like that because it sounds ridiculous. But one of the things that I've learned is that nobody really knows anything. Mm-hmm. No matter what their title or their background. And again, I'm, I'm having seen a lot of stuff up close, I can tell you, I just presume that, you know, I at least have as right as much a right to ask a question as, as, as anybody, because all of us are in the dark trying to fumble through mm-hmm. this kaleidoscope of issues and, and, and so true. concepts and, and, mm-hmm. and muddle along as best we can. So if you approach even, I mean, respectfully and humbly, not like, you know, you're an idiot and you don't know anything, but like, we're all kind of in this together mm-hmm. and none of us really know anything. Let's figure mm-hmm. this out as your, as your attitude. You mm-hmm. also, the universe kind of meets you where you are, right? Yeah, it, that's interesting. I uh, started the year with a quote for the faculty and the uh, leadership team that uh, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. I'm so, yes, that's a good one. Who yeah. said that? Uh, so that is, um, uh, I'd have to get the name. It's a Buddhist monk who uh, uh, used that um, in, in a uh, book called uh, Zen for Beginners. That's, it's really interesting you say that because we, one of the things that I've tried to do organizationally at the firm is to, is to create no functional or no industry expertise. So in yeah. a lot of places, you, you're the technology person, yeah. you're the consumer goods person, you're the, here it's complete free-for-all. And, and the reason why is that, because once you have positioned yourself as an expert, you're trapped with the burden of expertise and you can't ask the dumb questions because yeah, yeah. you can't look dumb because you define yourself as someone who's not dumb on this issue. Uh, if you uh, come in and right. say, I'm dumb. Well, you're the know-it-all again. Yeah. Right. And, and there's a, there's something about a beginner's mind that uh, brings a freshness to any uh, problem and that freshness brings possibility. Right. That's a good one. There's, well, there's connections to Quakerism in this too, right? Notions of continuing revelation. Right. Um, you know, a sense of humility Yes. Uh, that is important, putting oneself um, in a position to be transformed by discourse or by a message, um, by a message of one or from one. Um, all of this is consistent. And, with, and resistant to uh, hierarchy and authority that everybody right. can have one-to-one experience with the truth. Yeah, right? direct experience. You don't need uh, yeah. an interlocutor for that. Um, and that's an incredibly powerful concept of our tradition, I think. Yes. And it's one that, um, leads us back to a concept that you started with of courage, right? There's a, there's a, a certain courage that someone has to have uh, to speak into that space. Yeah. I'm thinking back to, to meeting for worship, and obviously a lot of times you, you, you know, your 16-year-old brain remembers the more ridiculous <laughs> moments. But it was a nice ritual that as a community, we're all going to sit in one place, yeah. and then anyone can get up and say, whatever they want and there's no matter no how silly no and stupid or ridiculous it may seem right it is r- received openly and with respect that's right right yeah and i mean well and that's that way i said earlier that it engenders a kind of confidence uh hope you hope without arrogance Yes. Right? there's a confidence and courage to speak into that space but there is humility to share your message with the group Right, um, and that's a special orientation, I think, that is very unique to the Quaker experience. Yes, it's interesting. I, I would say I never once spoke in meeting for worship. I'm yeah. kind of interestingly re- reflecting on whether that you know 
Um, but it's interesting in, in one thing that you were talking about um, in terms of the tension you felt between someone who was extraordinarily successful in economic terms and 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 having a Quaker background. That's yeah. that's not something that's unique to friends, right? There have been friends who have been remarkably successful in business, early capitalists or Quakers. Yes. Yeah. John Wharton. Right. Uh, the Cadburys, Clark Shoes, Barclays Bank, Lloyd's of London, Macy's Department Store. Right. Right. But there was something that they did with their wealth that separated them from many other successful capitalists. Um, give me some good reading assignments there to climb the learning curve again uh, to figure out exactly. But I, I do know that to the, uh, the simplistic rubric I've always heard is is that Quakers in business were successful because they were straightforward, transparent. That's right. And not, you know, not sort of tough-nosed negotiators or, you know. They were honest. Uh, yeah. Um, and they, and they, they paid their debts. Right. Uh, and because they paid their debts, uh, there was confidence um, in, in working with them as bankers. I mean, their banking network emerged initially because they were excluded from the banking network in London. Interesting. Um, and also they were excluded from the university system. So they had to find their own networks. Um, they had to right. find their own ways of financing their businesses. Um, but they became so successful at it um, that their, uh, their reputation moved outside of the Quaker community and people wanted to do business with them. Yeah, and I think that there maybe there's some parallels there. Um, the, the what they did with their wealth is something I'm, I'm less less familiar with. But I will say that uh, one of the tensions I, I said, well, uh, I think did a very good job of elevating in uh, my mind and all of our students' minds the importance of social activists, artists. Um, uh, uh, sort of social change agents, right? Um, the business community was sort of not, I don't want to say, I don't think it was like um, maligned so much as it was kind of ignored mm -hmm. and, and not uh, really relevant. Now, that was a different story when I got to Princeton, mm -hmm. right? It's, right. Um, obviously a different story when I got to Wall Street. But... Um, <laughs> But I didn't have a real uh, framework for thinking about this. Right. right. I didn't have uh, a solid feeling that it was okay or that it was like bad either. It was sort of like a nebulous thing that I had to kind of More fumble, my, fumble yeah. my way through. Yeah. This has been great. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Thanks for making time for this. Appreciate it. it.